listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get to it. Mark chapter 8 is where we find ourselves in our journey through the gospel of Mark. And so I'd love for you to get your copy of God's word and open it to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read just a few verses today. Uh, 22 through 26, and if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use the one that's in the chair, in the rack underneath, in front of you. There's a couple racks, uh, every other chair. Two and a half, three years ago when we were moving into this building and outfitting this place um, and spending a lot of money, Reynolds and I put our heads together and we were so proud of ourselves because we saved a couple hundred dollars on going with racks in every other chair, which not to minimize a couple hundred dollars, but um, in comparison to what we spent to refit this place, it was chump change. And now we kick ourselves because we could have had racks underneath every chair, but now there's a rack underneath every other chair. And so, so you know, you might have to go to the right or left, but if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible as your own. Maybe you're a young soldier that was invited to church today, or maybe you're just investigating Christianity, and you're here today with a friend, um, let that Bible be our gift to you. And, and by the way, if you're not very used to finding scriptures, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, which is the second book of the New Testament. And uh, that is on that Bible, it's on page 844. And so we're working our way through. We think that's the best thing we can do as a church, is spend the vast majority of our time just working through books of the Bible and seeking to understand what the Lord is saying to us through his scriptures, not starting with a topic and then, you know, coming to the scriptures, but starting with the scriptures and then trying to apply it to all of our life, okay? And so today we're going to read just a few verses and we're coming to this culminating point in the gospel of Mark, which we're going to look at next week when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And it seems to be like the turning point in Mark And then from that point on, Jesus begins to teach them more specifically about who he is and about his his, uh, death and and resurrection that is coming. But now we're kind of coming to this culminating point where the Holy Spirit through Mark is, is really in this story, in this quick story that we'll read today, really amplifying human spiritual blindness and how we come to see Jesus. And so... Let me read verses 23 through 26. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Verse 23, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. All right. So let's acknowledge right off the bat that this is a little strange. So Jesus... Uh, what's going on here? First of all, he spits in a blind man's eyes. Unusual. And then it seems like it takes Jesus like two tries. I mean, <laughs> would, 
I mean, hey, we've read a lot about Jesus' healings up to this point in the first eight chapters or so. Is Jesus' tank running on empty? Is, is he running out of juice cards here? What's going on? I mean, does he need a refill? Was this a particularly difficult case that Jesus needed a little bit more mojo? I don't think that's the case because we've seen Jesus do much more difficult things with just one word. So what's going on here? All right, I'm going to lay my cards on the table at the very beginning, and then we're going to kind of fill in the blanks. I think what's happening here is this is more than just a healing account. Certainly it's that, but it's more than just that. This really serves as we approach this really culminating point in the Gospel of Mark in, in next week where Jesus confesses and understands finally who Jesus is. This really serves as a parable of how Jesus brings healing and, and really spiritual sight. And the point of this story, I think, is that all of us are spiritually blind and that receiving spiritual sight, which is trusting in Christ, is a process. And so here's my three points, and we're going to work our way through them. So here's point number one, is that receiving spiritual sight is a process. We're going to talk about what that means. And point number two is the process of receiving spiritual sight glorifies God. And then thirdly and finally, to rightly, to see rightly is to see Jesus. To see rightly is to see Jesus. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll, we'll work our way through these points briefly. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. I know that there are people in this room who uh, may not yet be trusting in Jesus that may still be in spiritual blindness, trusting in themselves, maybe even fooling themselves to think that they're, they're okay, but they're not. And then there are those of us in this room who do see you rightly. We are trusting in you, but our, our life is still full of, of cloudy things on the edges, and we don't see all that we need to see rightly. And so we come as needy people today. I pray for my friends in this room who are spiritually blind. and They don't realize it. I pray that you'd give them eyes to see so that they can see Jesus. I pray for my friends in this room who, like me, who, who suffer from temporary, momentary blindness even after we've received sight or blurry edges I pray, Lord, that you'd give us 20-20 focus on who Jesus is. And I pray that our hearts would be so stirred with the beauty and the all-sufficiency and the loveliness of Jesus that that would overpower other things in our life and that we would follow him. I pray that you'd help us now and help me as I communicate these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this miracle where this man comes to Jesus and these friends bring this, this blind man to Jesus. It kind of reminds me of that time all the way back in Mark chapter 2 that we looked at a couple months ago where we remember those four friends that lowered their friend down through the roof and, and brought their friend to Jesus. Again here we see a, a few kind friends that whether or not they completely understood who Jesus was or not, we don't know, but they, they seem to understand that Jesus could do something for this man and so they brought this man, these good friends, brought this blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch him. 
And then Jesus takes this man. He doesn't just look at, let's get into the scene here and, and not just blow past it, but Jesus, just this amazing compassion that Jesus has. He takes this man by the hand and he doesn't just heal him right there on the spot, but he's teaching this man and the people around him, and he's teaching us now 2,000 years later something very powerful. He takes this man by the hand. You know the, the trust, like from where he was outside the village. I mean, that was more than just like on the other side of the room. The trust that it takes to, to let somebody lead you if you're completely sight impaired. I mean, certainly parents, I'm sure you're... You've had this happen before where, you know, you're in your room or you're in some other room in the house doing something and your child comes in and wants you to see the creation of the thing that they have made, but they want to surprise you with it. And so they come in and they say, Daddy or Mommy, close your eyes. And so this happened to me yesterday. Um, uh, my children, or maybe it was the day before, Jennifer was, I don't know, she was at her mom's house and I had the two little ones, and, which is always a dicey, it's always a dicey environment when it's just me and the little ones. And our two younger children, and they were making something with these blocks, and some of these blocks were small, and there were these little characters, these little army men that were sort of scattered across it. And so they said, Daddy, Daddy, come, and we want to show you our creation. And so they're, they're guiding you by the hand. And I thought, you know, today, this one time, I'm going to play it honest. I'm, I've been reading this thing here about, you know, spiritual blindness and Jesus leading this man. And instead of kind of keeping my eyes sort of open so that I don't bump into a door, I'm actually going to let my five-year-old Abraham lead me while I'm, my eyes are completely closed out of my room into the living room to see his little creation of blocks. Well, that's the last time that I think I'll, I'll ever do that. <laughs> I mean, bumped into the wall. I was barefoot. And there's nothing as pleasant as stepping on a little army figure or a little block against a hardwood floor, you know. Just didn't do the greatest job of leading me to his creation. Although when I saw it and opened up my eyes, it was sufficiently glorious, no doubt. But just, just think about the, the trust that it takes. And think about even the rapport that is developed when this man trusts Jesus to, to lead him outside the village and just that gentle touch of the creator of the universe has your hand in his hand and you're still blind and Jesus in his kind providence is setting this man up to receive not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. And so that, that leads us to this, this first truth that I want us to look at, that receiving spiritual sight is a process. And we see this process in just these few verses in this man's, in this man's life. Now don't misunderstand. We, we are, are huge here on the truth that salvation is of the Lord and that there is a moment when anybody who has ever trusted in Jesus and become a Christian passes from death to life. There's a moment in time and, and some of you are, are maybe very aware of that moment in your life when, you, when it's just like the lights went on and you heard the gospel preached and bam, the Lord just hit you. And, and you have this testimony where, where it's very clear to you that, that that's when I trusted in Jesus. But for most people, and we see this in this, this, this really this parable in the form of a healing, it's a process where God behind the scenes is leading them 
to trust in him. And, and the Bible, if, you, if we read it sort of systematically, we see we can piece together how God saves a person. Well, really, truthfully, God saves people before the foundations of the earth. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. It says that he sets his saving love on us, that he chooses us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that he predestines us for adoption in Christ Jesus. And so God sets his saving love on his people before the foundations of the earth. So, so salvation from beginning, even before time until the end, is all of the Lord. And then God, now in time, in our lives, calls out to us with the gospel. And he does this maybe through a preacher or through a friend or through listening to some teaching or just through the communication of the good news of the gospel. God saves people by hearing the words of what Jesus did on the cross. He doesn't save people by putting on their burden, on their heart a burden to sort of swear away their lives and to come to church and to learn some principles on how to be better people. No, God saves not by a sort of general, ambiguous impression of love or the, this need that you need to do better. He saves by somehow in your life communicating to you the words of the gospel, which is the good news. And so that's why, friends... Um, you know that phrase, and, and listen, I, I, understand, I understand what this phrase is trying to say, but I actually want you to look past this phrase and see how it can actually be a bit helpful. You know that phrase where um, it's become sort of Christian lore, and I think it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I don't think he actually said it, but he's the guy that's on the coffee mug and the shirt when we see this quote, so we'll just give it to him. It says that, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Now, I, I understand the sentiment of that, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, beaten up on that. But to some degree, I am. Do you see that you need to hear the facts of the gospel? The gospel is not just some sort of sentiment. That's not how God saves people. He doesn't save people by, by, by letting them see some good random act of kindness. Now He may use that to draw them in this process to Himself, but ultimately. God opens up the heart of his people whom he has set his saving love on before the foundations of the earth by somehow communicating to them these facts that we are sinners and that we are all spiritually blind and that we are hopeless without him and that Jesus has come and has lived the perfect life that we have not lived, that we've rebelled against and he has laid down his life on the cross and he's obeyed the law. You know the catechism that we're going through and we're reading through these these Old Testament, these, these Ten Commandments, that's helpful for us to, to, to see that Old Testament holiness and law of God because it puts into context for us the holiness of God and how we have failed, like Israel failed to uphold God's law, we too fail to uphold God's law. But Jesus comes and he perfectly obeys God's law and he lays down his perfect life as not just fully man but fully God on the cross and he absorbs the punishment that should have been ours. And he takes the, the punishment for sin of his people. And he then satisfies it because he's completely holy and because he's righteous. His sacrifice is satisfactory. It satisfies. It extinguishes God's wrath. And he dies, but he doesn't stay dead because he's God. He rises again in victory over sin and death and all of its consequences and is now at the right hand of God as the second person of the Trinity calling all of us everywhere to turn and trust in him. And so somewhere along the line when God saves a person, he brings that news of the gospel to their heart. 
and that news of how we are fallen and we can't get up, but Jesus has obeyed where we disobeyed and has taken our punishment. If we will turn from trusting in ourselves and trust in Jesus, that is the gospel and that's what we need to actually hear to become Christians. And God in his kindness causes this somehow to hit our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And then what happens in, in a moment, in a moment when God saves a person, that gospel hits their heart and all of a the sudden they receive life. They're made alive as Ephesians 2 says. They go from death to life, from rebellion to trusting in Jesus, from having no faith to having trust in Jesus, to life, from no breath to breath. And that, the Bible calls, being born again, to be regenerated. And that happens in a moment. Like, there's a birth certificate somewhere in a file in my house that says, I was born at 6.25 a.m. in Riverside, California, at Kaiser Permanente Hospital on January 13th, 1971. Like, there's a moment, boom, I was born. And likewise, for everybody that has ever become a Christian, there is a moment when they are born again. And in that moment, we now have life. And with that life comes faith because now we're alive and God has given us faith where we can trust in Jesus finally and we can turn from our sin. That's called conversion. That happens, boom, right then, conversion, right then as we are born again. And then we're simultaneously justified, made right because of Christ's sacrifice and adopted into God's family. And that all happens in a moment. But the point I'm making, friends, is that leading up to that process, leading up to that moment is a process where we receive spiritual sight. And we see here Jesus arranging this man's life and leading him out of town so that he has him one-on-one, -on -one, so that he speaks the words of life to him. And he even, he even kind of takes him through a process where this healing happens in stages to show us that oftentimes the gospel comes to us in stages. I was listening to Tim Keller preach on this a few weeks ago, and he talked about how there's really two models in the Bible of salvation. There's this model of the Apostle Paul who gets knocked off a horse in Acts chapter 8 and 9. It's dramatic. He goes from being this guy who's dragging Christians away to their death to being this apostle of the Gentiles. And that's sort of the one that gets the, the most publicity, right? You know, we tend to think that every conversion experience is like that. And that's the one that gets the, the sort of the publicity on the websites or the video testimonies or whatever. You know, I was a drunk, I was terrible, I was, and bam, God hit me, I heard the gospel, and now everything's fine. And we all kind of think, oh, great, praise the Lord. It's not the way it's working out for me. But there's, a, there's another model that Keller points out in the Bible, and that's Peter's, Peter's model of salvation. It's a really a process where he's just doing knuckleheaded stuff over and over and over again. And even after we read in Mark chapter 8 next week where Jesus confesses Christ, at the end of the Gospels we read where, Jesus, where Peter denies Jesus. So, so salvation isn't only a process as God leads us to hear the Gospel and puts us in a place where we, he opens up our ears and saves us and makes us alive. But even after we become Christians, it's a process of, of being transformed by God's grace. And notice that God used a couple things to aid this man's process. First, he used community. He used, he used a group of people to bring him to Jesus. The, the importance of life together, to not sort of live life on the fringes, to live life on your own. 
the importance of being connected to a community of people who will bring you to Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not. Even after you've trusted in Jesus, you need people to bring you to Jesus. And then notice also that God used blindness to bring this man to Jesus. It was this man's blindness that was the cause of his friends to bring this man to Jesus. And his deeper need was not just to have physical sight, but to have spiritual sight. Don't don't miss that. Look, we are pampered Americans. Like, we throw our hands up at every trial, every obstacle, every roadblock, every difficulty, every sickness, and we throw our hands up and we say, God, where are you? When God may be using that very thing to wean us from this world and woo him to himself. We curse the trial or the disease when that may be the very thing that God is using to bring us to him. That doesn't mean that we should be spiritual masochists and want pain. But friends, know that far more important than comfort in these 70 or 80 or 90 years or perfect health or perfect finances or perfect whatever is the kindness of God to use that trial to bring you so that you will let go of this world and grab onto him for eternity, friends. And when we see that rightly, we can kiss the trial rather than curse it because it woos us from this world and it weans us to Jesus. This past week I was reading this old Puritan paperback by this Puritan named Thomas Brooks who happened to be Spurgeon's favorite Puritan. Spurgeon was in the mid-1800s, wasn't kind of missed the Puritan age, but he liked this old guy named Brooks who was an English pastor in the 1600s. Listen to Tommy B. on this one. This is so good. Some are brought to Christ by fire, storms, and tempests. Others by more easy and gentle gales of the Spirit. The Spirit is free in the work of conversion. And as the wind it blows, when, where, and how it pleases. Thrice happy are those souls that are brought to Christ, whether it be on a winter's night or on a summer day. Praise God. Praise God for providences in my life and your life. Praise God for the blindness of this man because it brought him to Jesus so that he could see not just for the remaining 40 years of his life, but forever. And receiving spiritual sight is a process. Secondly, quickly, the process of receiving sight glorifies God. So look at this, look at this process. Verse 23. It says, he took the man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he spit on his eyes, quite honestly, I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, remember we read last chapter, Mark 7, where Jesus sort of seemed to communicate with sign language with this deaf and mute man, and that man could see, and Jesus touched his tongue and spit on his tongue and touched his ear and it seemed like Jesus was communicating to him because he couldn't hear that he was going to heal him and so Jesus didn't want to just you know bowl over him with a miracle he wanted this man to understand why Jesus is spitting on this blind man's eyes I think some of the commentaries I read spoke to how this would have been something that would have been associated with with healing or like an eye medicine and so he's he's communicating to this man that there's this there's this medicine for his eyes and his soul that's coming to him maybe but but to let's be honest to our 21st century ears that's that's kind of strange and then Jesus unlike any other miracle touches him 
And instead of just saying to him, you're healed, he, he spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, and then he asks him, do you see anything? And, and in verse 24, he looks up and he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, I love this because this guy is honest. He's honest. Like, I'm sure he's probably heard about Jesus' healing power. At least on the short journey that his friends drug him to Jesus, maybe he was completely oblivious to who Jesus was, but, but certainly on the short trip that his friends said, hey, there's this healer in town, we've been here and he's been doing all these things. I mean, the past eight chapters have been full of Jesus healing all these people across the countryside everywhere, and so at least in that short journey, if he didn't know about Jesus before that, they at least sort of, you know, cued him up like, this guy's, he's got it, man, you're gonna, this could be your chance, and so he's coming with some sort of faith to some degree that, or expectation that Jesus is gonna do something, and then Jesus touches him, and it doesn't quite happen for him. Spits in his eyes, do you see anything? Uh, yeah, but everybody looks like trees walking. I find great comfort in the fact that this guy was honest. Like, there's so much pressure in Christian circles to act like everything is okay all the time. But I can remember as, a, as an 18-year-old freshman in college, I had just become a Christian before I went to college, like three months before. I'd spent most of my high school years in in hidden rebellion against God, faking the world into thinking that I was some good kid rebelling against God. I turn and trust in the gospel. I then go across the country to this college and I find myself in this church of really good, earnest people. And it wasn't because of anything they did. It was because of my own sin and my own lack of spiritual honesty. I I sort of clicked into acting like I I had it all together, right? Right? And there's just this pressure, it seems like, in church circles to act like you know what everybody's talking about. I had been a Christian for six minutes, and I'm acting like I grew up and I know everything. What is that? What's that in us? There's this spiritual honesty that this man has, that he's, he's, he's seeing him. Before we can see Jesus rightly, he's seeing himself rightly. There's that 12-step program that I think all of us are familiar with, and I think there's pros and cons to that. But one thing I do appreciate about Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever 12-step program is that the first step is admitting that you have a problem. I'm sure we're all familiar with people that maybe have some alcohol problem or drug problem or addiction. And it just seems like they can't admit that like they have the problem. This man was honest and even after Jesus, even as he's in this process of being healed, he is honest. And in that process, God gets glory. Like I, I want, like, I want to fast forward everything. I want my sanctification to fast forward. I want my Bible knowledge to fast forward. I want, I want us as a congregation to fast forward. I want everything to be okay. I am easily frustrated by things that are out of joint. I know that may shock you. I know. I know. I'm type A. Just go, go, go. But I am easily angered by things in my own life and by things in this church that are not quite right. 
And why is that? Because I, I don't see rightly all the time. I see life sometimes as men like trees walking. I see blurry things. I don't see how God can get glory in this process. And as he's weaning me from this world and wooing me to himself, even after I become a Christian, what's happening is as an onlooking world that's looking at me and looking at you and looking at Christians sees people going through this process that isn't warp speed, isn't hyperspace like you went from this train wreck to all of a sudden being this trophy of grace, but you go through this process of having your affections and your sight turn to trust in Jesus, and there's this process that then becomes a display to an onlooking world where you are walking away from broken things to Jesus, and it gives time for people to look at it and see this person is being weaned from this world and wooed to Jesus. And in that process, friends, God gets glory. But we are Americans, aren't we? I mean, come on, we want everything. We got little burritos that we can heat up for 30 seconds in the microwave. I want my burrito now, man. Nobody wants to go through the process of making a tortilla and refrying those beans, man, the guacamole. Come on. We want it in a wrapper. We want it in the microwave. We want it now. We want our sanctification now. We want God to work for us now. We want it now. But God is deemed in his wisdom to get glory through our rugged process of seeing him rightly. Which brings us to our third point. That to see rightly is to see Jesus in all his beauty. I don't want you to think today that that um, this is just a, a message about how you, you need to square yourself away and you need to see rightly and you need to, you know, you need to turn, we can get so kind of caught up in the, the, the steps of what it means to come to Jesus. Okay, there's conversion and then justification, all these things. Now, I, I think that the point here that the Holy Spirit is communicating through Mark is that that ultimately spiritual sight is not to live better or to be a moral person or to, to just sort of change your own life, but it's to see Jesus rightly and to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord as we read at the very beginning. There's this old Puritan pastor, another Puritan, his name is Thomas Chalmers. He was a Scottish guy. I don't have his quote up on the screen, but he wrote this sermon couple hundred years ago called the expulsive power of a new affection and he argued for in this sermon and I think it's a great point that the Christian life isn't about gritting your teeth and improving your life and saying no to broken things so that God will accept you but that when we see Jesus, that he's this beautiful new affection, and he, because he's so beautiful and he's so satisfying, he overpowers other broken affections in our life. And when he gives us sight and we see him, he, seeing Jesus rightly has an expulsive power in our lives. And we see Jesus, and he's, he's more beautiful than broken counterfeits. When we see Jesus, when he gives us sight, he, he becomes, even through the process, even through his gentle process of leading us by the hand, he becomes more beautiful than the things that have blinded us before we see him. 
And, and that's the best way to fight sin and idolatry. Y- young man that is fighting lust or pornography, change your paradigm. It's not so much about saying no to this broken counterfeit thing as it is saying yes to something that is far more beautiful than the form of a woman. Somebody that's fighting any idolatry for the young businessman that is stepping over people to work himself up the corporate ladder. It's not so much about being a better steward of your money and giving away more and you know, giving everything to missions. No, it's about seeing Jesus who is far more satisfying than position and fame and money so that from that flows a desire to, to give your life away. To, to the young lady who who, who's grown up in a culture where beauty is personified as this broken skinniness on a magazine cover. It's not so much having a right image of yourself and you know, going to some sort of self-esteem class. It's seeing the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus as an expulsive new affection that overpowers the broken idol of false beauty in your life. Do you see that? The battle in the Christian life is to see Jesus rightly. And when we see Jesus rightly, that cures a thousand ills, friends. Do you see that? When we, see, when we look to him, we simultaneously look away from every other thing that pollutes our soul. Seeing Jesus rightly has an expulsive power in our lives. And, and that's, that's the point of what I want to say today. And I end on that. Have you seen Jesus? Like he's, more, like he's more beautiful. He is all sufficient. He's strong. He's merciful. He's, he's gracious. He's true. He's, he's sovereign. He's good. Have you seen Jesus? And do you think you can see him on your own? Listen, I... I I'm confident that I'm trusting in Jesus, and I'm confident that there's many people in this room that are trusting in Jesus, but we all still need each other's help to see this beautiful, grand affection of Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Are you even, are you even aware that maybe you came into this room not seeing rightly? If for the first time in your life you became aware that you're not seeing it rightly, I think that's great evidence that God is, is leading you out of whatever village of blindness that you've been in. He's spitting on your eyes right now. And he's starting the process that you would turn and trust in him. Look to him even now. Look to Jesus now. And let the expulsive power of the new affection of Jesus, crowd out, expel broken pleasures in your life and look to him and see him in his beauty and turn away from counterfeit beauties and trust in him even now. Let's do that right now, friend. Father, as we come to you now, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray for people in this room that came in not trusting in Jesus. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't walk out of here with a to-do list to try and improve their sight because that is hopeless. I pray that you and you alone, because you are their only hope,
your sovereign grace is their only hope, I pray that you would give them eyes to see. Lord, up to this point, you have been doing a thousand things behind the scenes of their life, leading them, taking them by the hand, maybe even introducing trial and trouble in their life to bring them to a place where finally they will let go of this world and cling to you, Lord. You've been doing all of that process to bring them to this one moment where you give them sight. Lord, would you do that? And would they see Jesus? And would they turn and trust in him? And Father, for my friends in this room that have already trusted in Jesus, we're still in this process of sanctification, of growing more and more like Jesus, of seeing him ever more clearly. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is altogether lovely and beautiful and sufficient. And that he is the great, new, glorious, beautiful affection that crowds out all others in our lives. Lord, would you give us that? Would you, would you reorient our eyes on Jesus? And would we see him in all his beauty? Lord, I pray that you'd do this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's all stand together and the worship team is going to lead us.